Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Courier. And this is for Thursday, January 5th. I am your reader, Peter Welch, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. So let's take a look and see what's going on here on the front page. Lawmakers push water bills. GOP Senator will file modified water quality trust fund legislation. Iowa voters approved a trust fund in 2010 to support a statewide water quality and outdoor recreation. And yet it has remained empty ever since. During the legislative session that begins on Monday, will legislature consider filling it like, like they tried before without coming to agreement? As of now, it's unclear, but a lawmaker says he'll try again. The Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund, also known as Iowa Water and Land Legacy, or I Will, is dedicated to improving the state's water quality, protecting and conserving Iowa's farmland, expanding natural areas, and providing recreation. To trigger funding for the state natural resources, outdoors and recreation fund trust funds, legislatures must, or I should say legislators, I should say, must increase the state sales tax. Last year, Senate Republicans broached a proposal that would eliminate all local option sales taxes and increase the state sales tax one cent, reserving three-eighths of that cent for the trust fund. But that proposal never got off the ground. Republican Senator Dan Dawson of Council Bluffs, who chairs the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy and introduced the proposal last year, told the Gazette that he plans to try again this year, but with a slightly modified route through the state's tax policies. Dawson said that he wants to streamline existing taxes instead of local jurisdictions having their own optional sales tax, which are approved by voters, the tax would be standardized for all local governments across Iowa. The state would collect the local sales tax and then remit it back to the local jurisdictions. And also, under Dawson's proposal, would be a one-cent increase to the base sales tax rate meaning that the sales tax in Iowa would be 7%, even in communities that previously voted for a local option sales tax. The state would absorb costs for the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund out of its new sales tax base. I live in Council Bluffs, right? My sales tax here is 7%, Dawson said. We want to try to find a way to work within that 7% sales tax, as opposed to just raising people's sales tax all across the board. He said he plans to bundle his I will plans into a larger discussion on property taxes, which will be the focus of his committee this season. We would streamline our sales tax policy and be able to fund our natural resource fund. So it's kind of the best of both worlds, he said, adding that most Iowans and local governments would see no net changes in their sales tax. If the funding stream for I will is activated, it would commit 23% to natural resources, 20% to soil conservation and water protection, 14% to watershed protection, 
13% to the Resources Enhancement and Protection Program known as REAP, R-E-A-P. 13% for local con- conservation partnerships, 10% for outdoor recreational trails, and 7% for lake restoration. And in Waterloo, seat to be filled by ward election. Council sets March vote after heated discussion. During Jerome Amos's last city council meeting, representing Ward 4, discussion on how to fill his seat got heated. Waterloo resident Todd Obedel was dragged out of the Tuesday meeting after continually interrupting Mayor Quentin Hart. The council decided 6-0 with Councilor John Chilly's absent to fill the Ward 4 seat with a March 7th special election. In November, Amos was elected to the Iowa legislature representing House District 62. Last month, the council decided during a work session that his successor would be appointed. However, Ward 4 residents filed a petition to hold a special election for the seat. During Tuesday's meeting, Obadol doggedly made the case for the special election, something councilors already seem to be on board with. I think it's important to have a special election because the people of Ward 4 need the, the decision, Obadol said which was met with applause from other Ward 4 residents, were suppressing the vote of Ward 4. Nobody's, su- nobody's suppressing the, the vote, Hart said. You just heard the council. Obadol and Hart began talking over each other, making it hard to distinct- distinguish what they were saying. Hart motioned to Police Chief Joe LeBold to escort Obadol out of the chambers. Obadol would not move and clenched his hands to the po- podium. He repeatedly asked Leobold to arrest him, which the chief did not do. After the ordeal, more residents of the 4th Ward spoke, validating the decision for a special election. The Reverend Lawrence E. Marshall of Payne African Methodist Episcopal Church said it would have been a disservice to the community if the council did not use its authority to hold the election. There was some hesitancy from Amos about holding a special election, and he noted that the ward would be without a representative for at least two months. The council set the special election to fill the vacancy alongside a Hawkeye Community College referendum set for March 7th rather than making it the earliest possible date. That will save money for the city, which would otherwise be responsible for the full 7500 dollar cost of holding a solo special election. The college is asking for voter approval of a $35 million bond issue in its 10-county service area. Ward 4 resident Beverly Cosby said that she's willing to wait for the right uh, person to represent her. We want a leader who's qualified and knows what the fourth ward needs, she said. When we're talking about the fourth ward, it's the north side, the east side. We need it. And we have been lacking it for a long time. The earliest date a special election could have been held or would be held would be on the 7th of February with the March date if there is a runoff. And it will take place four weeks later or April 4th. Well, let's let's see. Let's take a look here. What else is going on in Waterloo? Uh, Making a career move. Central students learn in Career Center space as school is remodeled. 
when seventh graders Isaiah Shepard and Calice Creighton Evans arrived at Central Middle School on Wednesday morning, it wasn't to their usual classrooms, and it won't be for some time. They joined their classmates at the just-opened Waterloo Career Center Annex, where middle school classes will be held for the next year as renovations are made on the central building. It's noisier and less spacious than what they're used to, and getting adjusted may take a little bit of time. It probably is going to be a lot louder. It's probably going to be a little bit more distracting because there's so much new stuff around. People will be distracted by the new things that are around us, Shepard goes on to say. However, they're willing to put up with it and to give the changes a try, especially for the prospect of more hallway space next year. And as it stands, crowded hallways have been a headache for students and have contributed to tardiness for those caught in the middle. It's an interesting change, Creighton Evans said. I don't know how it's going to be. I don't know how it's going to be to, to work out. But I hope that it's going to be better, especially because of all the space in the hallway. I mean, I feel like that's going to work out also. Construction on the 59,810-square-foot expansion of the Career Center got underway following the April 2021 Board of Education approval of $28.86 million contract to both build the annex and renovate the middle school. The work is being funded with district revenues from the statewide 1% sales tax for schools. Faculty started moving into the annex over winter break. According to Central Principal Ross Bauer and Arwiki Naiji, Director of School and Community Relations for Waterloo Community Schools, the renovations being made will change the flow of the building and make it reflect students' needs. Central was originally a high school before being changed to a middle school in the 1980s. Bauer and Naiji explained different levels of academia required, different types of facilities, and even different floor plans. Cedar Falls Council split over five-year plan, new CIP vote planned after adoption fails four to three. In Cedar Falls, a city council review of the capital improvements program last month proved to be no uh, predictor of the planning documents adoption. The seven councilors voiced few concerns or suggestions for changes to the draft document when they convened as a committee two weeks ago. But on Tuesday, they voted four to three against the program, outlining an estimated $459.64 million in expenses for 212 possible one-time projects and initiatives during fiscal years 2023 through 2028. Expenses are covered by a variety of funding resources and don't all fall squarely on the city's shoulders. Following the vote, Mayor Rob Green said that he'll call for a special meeting before the next schedule one in January, on the 17th of January. Once finalized, the fiscal year 2024 portion of the capital improvements program will be incorporated into the annual budget and tax rate calculations. The city has a March 31st deadline to submit its budget to the state. In addition to the committee meeting, the council seemingly backed uh, parameters and priorities for its finance office to follow 
in crafting the document during annual goal, set, annual goal setting sessions in November. Councilors Susan DeBure, Daryl Cruz, Dustin uh, Ganfield, and Dave Sires were the dissenters. DeBure said that she was very concerned with any spending that could lead to a tax increase. In particular, she highlighted the planned contributions of $8 million and $3 million, respectively, to Cedar Falls Community Schools' future swimming facility and the University of Northern Iowa's major UNI dome renovations. I don't like one taxing entity giving, off, giving gift money to another tax entity without the input from the public, said DeBure. While talking about the 700000 in general obligation bonds allocated in fiscal year 2024 for the swimming facility, DeBure also took issue with the $20.4 million earmarked for a downtown parking ramp since the city has not yet contracted and completed a planned feasibility study. Cyrus called for his colleagues to better prioritize what's important in hopes that the city doesn't have to raise taxes. He's also called for an opportunity to have the public weigh in on the bigger projects. We can't just overspend and overspend and overspend, he says. Cruz continued to ask questions, including about last month's awarded Main Street reconstruction project that he protested largely because of the cost of being 40% higher than the original engineering estimate. Garfield voiced concerns with organizations of the program rather than its, its contents. However, he noted during the committee meeting that he was struggling with the city's contribution to the UNI dome spread out over fiscal years 2025 through 2026 because of this year being tight and expressed being almost perplexed as to how we're going to pay for all of these improvements. Okay, now let's go over to the Cedar Valley section of the paper. And Cedar Falls is going to be expanding the, its industrial park. Council okays the purchase of 76 acres for $2.2 million along Union Ridgeway. In Cedar Falls, the city's industrial park will grow another 76 acres after, after the expansion won the city council's blessing on Tuesday. The council unanimously voted in favor of purchasing farmland at the corner of South Union Road and West Ridgeway Avenue for $2.175 million. The amount is expected to be reimbursed by property tax, tax revenues generated through future development at the site. The 76 acres is west of the West Viking Road Industrial Park and south of 200 acres recently bought by the city. Grading and installation of infrastructure has already occurred on the 200-acre plot to prepare and market it for development. According to Economic Development Coordinator Shane Graham, the sale could formally close in the next few months, adding to the city's industrial parkland that totals an estimated 1,500 acres. We've had great success with our industrial parks, said Councillor Kelly Dunn. After the meeting, it's helped with our tax base, it's basic economic development, and it brings jobs, all the things I love. The council did not take the opportunity to discuss purchasing the property from landowners Shirley Allander, Sandra Watson, and Julie Ledege in public. 
Counselors previously talked about the proposed acquisition in closed session, which is permitted under Iowa law. Also on Tuesday, the council adopted the Southwest Cedar Falls Urban Renewal Plan. The advantage of establishing an urban renewal plan for this area is that it allows the city to use tax increment financing funds to help with the development of that property, Graham told the council. The funds go toward developing agreements and offering incentives like the tax rebates along with the actual land acquisition, utility extensions, capital improvements, public infrastructures, and legal fees. Graham, in a memo to the council, said numerous developers and companies have shown an interest in the northern 200 acres. That was one reason the city moved forward with looking at the 76 acres. The city recently celebrated the 200 acres being designated a ready-to-build certified site by the Iowa Economic Development Authority, meaning less surprise for entity looking to construct a facility on any of the available parcels. Our first certified site designation shines a new global spotlight on the Cedar Falls Industrial Parks. And we look forward to capitalizing on this newly opened door for a stronger economy for the Cedar Valley and the state of Iowa, Mayor Bob Green said of at the, at the time. Well, now, do you like to play the lottery? Well, I don't know if you've been watching this pot growing, but this jackpot is really something. Mega Millions jackpot hits $940 million. Jackpot will be sixth largest in U.S. history in Des Moines. The Mega Millions jackpot increased to an estimated $940 million after another drawing resulted in plenty of losers, but not a single grand prize winner. The numbers drawn late Tuesday were 25, 29, 33, 41, 44, and gold mega ball 18. The next drawing is scheduled to be held on Friday night. The new $940 million jackpot is for a winner who chooses to be paid through an annuity over 29 years. Nearly all winners opted for a cash payout, which for Friday night's drawing would be an, an estimated $483 million. In Tuesday's drawing, there are more than 2.9 million winning tickets of various amounts, including three $4 million tickets sold in Arizona, Mississippi, and South Dakota. Mega Millions said in a statement, the lack of a winner of an estimated 78, or I should say rather 785 million jackpot Tuesday means that there have been 23 straight drawings without anyone taking the top prize. And the new jackpot will remain the sixth largest jackpot in U.S. history. The jackpot winning drought isn't surprising, given the daunting odds of one in 302.6 million of winning the top prize. The jackpot is the largest since someone in California won a record $2.04 billion Powerball prize on the 8th of November. There still has not been an announced winner of that prize. There have been only three large, or I should say larger rather, mega million jackpots than Friday's estimated prize in the game's 20 years, including $1.53 billion in 2018. $1.05 billion in 2021, and $1.33 billion in July, Mega Millions said. 
Mega Millions is playing in 45 states, as well as Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Okay, what else is going on? Council studies Playhouse's space needs. Waterloo Community Theater now operates out of Walker Building. Local thespians could see some changes to their community theater after a decision by the city council. Councilors Tuesday unanimously approved, completing a study to review the Waterloo Community Playhouse space. The WCP currently operates out of the Walker Building at 224 Commercial Street. The study led by InVision Architecture is looking at potential space sharing with the Waterloo Center for the Arts building located across the street. The firm will review the playhouse and art center spaces to see what options there may be for a future project. The Walker Building holds a small theater space, administrative offices, a classroom, costume storage and rentals, and some small prop storage. Anita Ross, the executive director for WCP, said that most of their shows take place at Hope Martin Theater located in the Arts Center. She also said that the WCA holds the dressing rooms, big, uh, bigger props and construction site, and the box office. We roll furniture and costumes across the street, Ross said. We probably look crazy going from one building to another. Other than the inconvenience of wheeling props across Commercial Street, Ross said that the cost of maintenance at the Walker Building is concerning for the organization as it is the diff its difficulty of updating its small theater space. And she said that there are two load-bearing pillars right in the middle of the space, which affects sight lines. However, Hope Martin, the theater, needs major upgrades too. And she said its lighting system is two generations behind what other theaters are using now. While the theater was shut down during the pandemic, a new light floor was installed. Ross said that the proposed study is a group effort, and she has met with the city and WCA multiple times. She said the Walker Building is the only building on the block that is not city-owned. We're not in the business of development. We're in the business of theater, Ross said. The development company wanted to know what our plan was moving forward, and the lot is very interesting to them. The study has an estimated cost of $17,500. The council also formally uh, adopted its new city seal and logo on Tuesday night. The new signage was unveiled at Mayor Quentin's Hearts State of the City address last month. Waterloo resident Forrest Delavu had some concerns about the adoption. What you're doing has already been done, Delavu said. This is not the way the government should be run. People should have input before decisions are made. He was also concerned about the logo changes on city property and how much it would cost. Also in Waterloo, Leyland named Board of Supervisors Chairwoman New leaders were chosen this week for the Black Hawk County Board of Supervisors. Linda Leyland will be chairwoman of the board, while Chris Schwartz will be chair pro tem. Leyland's appointment was unanimous, but it took some discussion to come to a consensus on Schwartz. Supervisor Dan Trekla said that there had been a uh, rotation of who held the chair pro tem position, 
and he believed it was Tom Little's turn. Schwartz said that he had not held the position yet. Traco motioned to appoint Little as chair pro tem, which Little seconded. Those two voted yes, while Travis uh, Hall, uh, Leyland, and Schwartz voted no. Leyland motioned to appoint Schwartz to the position, while uh, Little seconded, and all five voted yes. One arrested on gun charges in Saturday club shooting in Waterloo. Bond had been set at $100,000 for a man who was arrested on weapons charges in connection with a shooting outside a Waterloo strip club that sent two people to the hospital. Officers with the Waterloo Police Department's violent crime apprehension team arrested Oshia Tally Wright, age 26, on Tuesday on a charge of felon in possession of a firearm. Police said that Darius Davis, age 31, and Jamil Lanier, age 21, both of Waterloo, suffered non-life-threatening injuries around 12.10 a.m. Saturday when a large fight outside Flirt's Gentleman's Club on Jefferson Street erupted in gunfire. Police found uh, spent shell casings in the area. According to court records, investigators retrieved surveillance video showing Wright exit the club and become involved in a fight with several other people in the middle of the street as he walked back toward a Lincoln MXK. At some point during the fight, Wright went to the Lincoln and apparently retrieved a firearm. The video then shows Wright extended his arm and started shooting. The camera picked up the muzzle flashes, according to court records. Officers found spent 9mm shell casings in the area where Wright had been standing. Authorities allege that Wright is prohibited from handling firearms because of a prior felony drug conviction from a 2019 incident in which he was found with marijuana, scales, and a loaded handgun. Meanwhile, court records show that one of the men injured in the shooting, Davis, was out on bail and awaiting trial for a large fight inside Flirts on October 1st. In that case, video shows Davis throwing punches and kicks during the melee, and one of the victims was treated for possible internal head injuries. Davis and others were arrested on riot, rioting charges in the October incident. Prosecutors have since added charges of willful injury causing bodily injury. In Cedar Falls, police respond to false alarm at Viking Pump. A false alarm about an active shooter drew officers from several police departments to a Cedar Falls plant on Wednesday afternoon. An automated internal alarm triggered an evacuation at Viking Pump's manufacturing facility at 711 Viking Road about 2 p.m. Workers at the facility called 911 to report that the alarm was sounding. Our officers responded with several other departments, said Daniel Craig Burt with Cedar Falls Public Safety. We had a captain and a lieutenant. We started splitting up in teams and started doing the primary search of the building, looking for any threat. Plant officials mustered the employees into the parking lot where they waited in light snowfall while officers conducted two sweeps in the building before calling an all-clear. Officers found no threats and no one with injuries. 
Bert said that Viking office officials were well organized in evacuating and accounting for the employees. All Viking pump locations in Cedar Falls conducted active shooter training in conjunction with the Cedar Falls Police Department in 2020. It showed today with their organized and orderly evacuation of the business, he says. It wasn't immediately clear why the alarm was set off, and police are investigating. In addition to Cedar Falls, police officers from Hudson, Waterloo, Blackhawk County Sheriff's Office, University of Northern Iowa Public Safety, and Iowa State Patrol also responded. Lynch companies give 100,000 pounds of pork. In Wacoma, Lynch Family Companies and the Lynch Family Foundation completed their final pork donation of the year on Friday by awarding nearly 10,000 pounds of pork to food banks in northeast Iowa. The final meal contribution brings a total pork donations to 100,000 pounds for 2022, meeting the goals set last January to help address food insecurity in their communities. It's no secret that the rising food costs throughout the year and other inflation-related struggles are making food insecurity a more prominent issue in our communities, said Gary Lynch, chairman of the Lynch Family Companies. We also know that pork provides a nutritious, protein-rich meal, so we have been committed to doing our part to assist local food banks and pantries with ensuring Northeast Iowa families have food on the table. Lynch Family Foundation, the nonprofit division of Lynch Family Companies, was created in 1996 with a focus on giving back to the communities where employees live and work. Since its inception, the foundation has distributed more than $6 million in charitable support to nonprofit organizations focused on veterans and military service members, food insecurity, and other local impactful causes. Its most recent donation came in October with a 40,000-pound pork contribution to the Northeast Iowa Food Bank in Waterloo. Also in Waterloo, meth investigation results in one arrest. A Waterloo woman has been arrested in connection with a meth investigation. Bridget Mary Washington, age 44, was arrested on Tuesday for delivery of methamphetamine and violation of the Drug Tax Stamp Act. Bond was set at $100,000. According to court records, officers with the Tri-County Drug Enforcement Task Force used an undercover operative, operative rather, to buy 97 grams of meth from Washington in August. And I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the reading of The Courier, and this is Thursday, the 5th of January. This is IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services uh, Network for the Blind and the Disabled. And I am your narrator, Peter Welch. We do have just uh, three um, individuals who have passed in our obituary column today. Uh, the first one is Sherry Duffy, who passed on the 3rd of January of 2023 at her home surrounded by her family. Visitation will be between 4 and 7 p.m. on Friday, the 6th of January, at the Woods Funeral Home in Fairbank. Funeral Mass will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, the 7th of January, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, Fairbank. And lunch will be served at the Immaculate Conception Parish Center. And little flowers and plants, memorials may be directed to the family for later designation. And again, this is all going to be 
um, taken care of by the Woods Funeral um, Home uh, Organization. Jerry Gabird has passed at the age of 59 on December 30th in Iowa. Celebration of Life will be held on Saturday on the 7th of January uh, at 1 p.m. at the American Legion Post 653 at 161 East Main Street in Denver, Iowa. Memorials to the family for future designation. And then finally, Wallace Taylor, age 93, has passed of Waterloo. There's no additional information about um, uh, funeral plans at this time. Okay, let's turn the page again. Now, we are in the Nation and World News section of the paper. Let's take a look first at the Digest uh, section. Uh, Russian troops' deaths reveal flaws. In Kyiv, Ukraine, the Russian military's top brass came under increasing scrutiny Wednesday as more details emerged of how at least 89 Russian soldiers and possibly many more were killed in a Ukrainian artillery attack on a single building. The scene last weekend in the Russian-held eastern Ukrainian town Makovika, where the soldiers were temporarily stationed, appears to have been a recipe for disaster. Hundreds of Russian troops were reportedly clustered in a building close to the front line of the war, well within the range of the enemy's western-supplied precision artillery, possibly sitting close to an ammunition store, and perhaps unwittingly helped Kiev's forces to zero in on them. It was one of the deadliest single attacks on the Kremlin's forces since the war began more than 10 months ago, and the highest death toll in a single incident acknowledged so far by either side in the conflict. U.S. restarts services at embassy in Cuba, in Havana. Grappling with the biggest flood of Cuban migrants in decades, the U.S. reopened their long-closed legal pathway on Wednesday by resuming all visa services at its embassy in Havana. Hundreds of thousands of Cubans desperate to leave the island's flailing economy and reunite with family in the U.S., but unable to get visas in their own country, have been forced to fly to Central America and make tortoise journeys through the north or navigate the Florida Straits in rickety vessels. The number of Cubans detained on the U.S. southern border is now second only to the number of Mexicans, according to Customs and Border Protection figures. Hundreds of people gathered outside the embassy for visa appointments on Wednesday or waited outside for loved ones. In late December, U.S. Um, U.S. authorities rather reported stopping Cubans 34,675 times along the Mexico border in November, up from 28,848 times in October. And briefly, U.S.-Mexico border. President Joe Biden intends to visit the U.S.-Mexico border, his first trip there since taking office to connection with his meeting next week in Mexico City with the leaders of Mexico and Canada. We're working out the details now, Biden told reporters on Wednesday. Cryptocurrency in New York announced a $100 million settlement with Coinbase on Wednesday over what state of officials called significant failures in the cryptocurrency trading platform system for spotting potential criminal activity. Machete attacked. 
a man accused of attacking police with a machete near New York uh, Times Square on New Year's Eve was intent on committing a jihad against government officials and shouting Alu Akbar before striking one officer in the head and attempting to grab another officer's gun, prosecutors said on Wednesday. Coronavirus, the head of the World Health Organization, said on Wednesday that the agency is concerned about the risk to life in China amid the coronavirus explosive spread across the country and the lack of data from the Chinese government. Social media. European Union regulators on Wednesday hit Facebook parent Meta with hundreds of millions in fines for privacy violations and banned the company from forcing users in the 27 nation block to agree to personalized ads based on their online activity. Ireland's Data Protection Commission imposed two fines, totaling $414 million in its decision in two cases. The company says it will appeal. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Justice's minister on Wednesday, unveiled the new government's long promised overhaul of the judicial system that aims to weaken Israel's Supreme Court. And in Boston, leader of college scam gets three and a half years. Prosecutors sought six years for Rick Singer, citing his cooperation. The mastermind of the nationwide college admissions bribery scheme that ensnared celebrities, prominent business people, and other parents who use their wealth and privilege to buy their kids' way into top-tier schools, was sentenced to three and a half years in prison on Wednesday. The punishment for Rick Singer, age 62, is the longest sentence handed down in the sprawling scandal that embarrassed some of the nation's most prestigious universities and put a spotlight on the secretive admissions system already seen rigged in favor of the rich. Prosecutors had sought six years behind bars, noting Singer's extensive cooperation that helped authorities unravel the entire scheme. Singer began secretly working with investigators in 2018 and recorded hundreds of phone calls and meetings that helped authorities build the case against dozens of parents, athletes, coaches, and other arrested in March of 2019. Those sent to prison for participating in the schemes include Full House actor Lori Laughlin, her fashion designer husband Massimo Gianelli, and Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman. Coaches from schools included Yale, Stanford, Georgetown University, and the University of California, Los Angeles, admitted to accepting bribes as well. U.S. job openings are dropping, but still historically high. November figures indicate country isn't nearing a recession. In Washington, U.S. job openings slipped in November, but remained high, suggesting that businesses are still determined to add workers a blow to the Federal Reserve's effort to cool hiring and wage gains. There were 10.46 million job vacancies on the last day of November, down slightly from 10.51 million in October, the Labor Department said on Wednesday. Yet, the figures show that there are nearly 1.8 jobs for every unemployed person, down from a peak of two, but historically very high. Before the pandemic, there were usually more unemployed people than jobs. 
Such a high number of job op- openings suggests that the economy is not yet in recession or close to falling into one. And the high number of vacancies suggests that the Fed will continue raising its benchmark interest rates and its coming meetings to quell inflation. Those higher rates will also raise the cost of mortgages and auto loans and consumer and business borrowing. For federal officials, these data support the view that rates need to move higher and will need to stay high for some time to soften labor market conditions and lower prices back to target, says Rubilia Faruqi, chief U.S. economist at High Frequency Economics, a consulting firm. And another key metric... The number of people quitting their jobs rose 4.2 million, up from about 4 million in October. Okay, let's turn the page here. And now we're going to go to um, the Capital Notebook. Grassley sets longevity record. In Washington, Iowa U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley became the longest-serving Senate Republican in U.S. history after being sworn into his eighth Senate term on Tuesday. He surpassed Orrin Hatch of Utah, who served from 1977 to 2019. Grassley was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 1980 and has held the seat for 42 years, making him the sixth longest serving senator of either party. Grassley, age 89, is now also the longest serving sitting U.S. senator, replacing Democrat Patrick Leahy who did not seek re-election and finished his 48-year tenure on Tuesday. The, uh, the feat grants Grassley the formal title of Dean of the Senate, which is given to the chamber's longest-serving member. Serving my fellow Iowans in the Senate continues to be an honor of a lifetime, Grassley said in a statement provided by his office. I love Iowa, and I love my work for the people of Iowa uh, Today, Iowa holds the number one spot in the Senate with my leadership. I look forward to continuing to deliver for Iowa. I'm humbled and grateful to be entrusted with the honor of continue working for our great state. GOP declines press forum. The Iowa Capital Press Association annual legislation uh, preview forum was canceled this week after Governor Kim Reynolds, Republican Senator Majority Leader Jack Whitaver, and Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley declined to attend. Byrd joins GOP lawsuits. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd signed on to lawsuits challenging President Joe Biden's administration and Democratic-backed laws during her first day in office on Tuesday. Byrd, a Republican who took over the office after defeating Democrat Tom Miller in the November election, made challenging the Bid administration and court a central plank of her campaign, along with her assertion she would back the blue and support law enforcement. Byrd signed on onto a challenge led by Nebraska to Biden's student debt forgiveness plan, as well as lawsuits challenging vaccine mandates and challenging a provision of the American Rescue Plan Act that prevented states from using federal funds to cut state taxes. Chief Justice, the Iowa Chief Justice Supreme Court reselected Chief Justice Susan Christensen to continue her role as Chief Justice for the next two years. Uh, Christensen of Harlem was first selected as Chief Justice in 2020. Selected as Chief Justice as 2020, success, su- succeeding rather Mark Caddy, who died in 2019, 
She was appointed to the state's highest court by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds in 2018. And she spent the previous 11 years as a judge and practiced law for 16 years in Harlan. Christensen is the second woman to serve as the court's chief justice. State of the state, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, will deliver her annual condition of the state's address Tuesday on the second day of the upcoming legislative session. This uh, address will take place at 6 p.m. in the House chambers of the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines. It will be live-streamed on Iowa PBS, YouTube, and the governor's Facebook page. During the address, Reynolds will report on various aspects of the state government and lay out her priorities for the legislature session, which will be beginning on Monday. Time now to go to the entertainment section of the paper, What to Watch on Television for Thursday, the 5th of January, Death in the Dorms on Hulu. This is a new series the six-episode uh, six docuseries tells the tragic and true story of six college students whose lives ended in murder. Through testimonies from family and friends and law enforcement, each episode focuses on the life of one young student, diving into their, into their lost potential, their loved one's grief, and the fight to bring their killers to justice. Ginny in Georgia, a season premiere on Netflix, in the 10-episode second season of this comedy drama, teenage Jenny, Antonia Gentry, has to figure out how to live with the knowledge that her mother, Georgia Brianne Howie, killed Jenny's stepdad, Kenya, in order to protect her. Georgia, on the other hand, would much prefer that the past be left in the past. After all, she has a wedding to plan, but Georgia's past never stays buried for long. On CBS at 7 p.m., here's a new episode for young Sheldon in the winter premiere episode, College Dropouts and the Medford Miracle. Sheldon considers dropping out of college to focus on building his database. Hell's Kitchen on Fox at 7 p.m., new episode. The competition heats up for the remaining chefs who are chasing a life-changing grand prize that includes a head chef position at Gordon Ramsay Steak at Paris, Las Vegas. Law and Order at 7 p.m. on NBC. New episode. When a homeless migrant is murdered, evidence leaves Cosgrove and Shaw to a mysterious cover-up at a construction site. Price and Marone push a key witness to testify, knowing that speaking out could lead to legal consequences. Ghosts on CBS at 7.30 p.m. This is a new episode. Season 2 of Ghosts resumes with the new episode, The Perfect Assistant. Sam and Jay find a highly qualified assistant for their B&B, &B, but their new employee comes with some surprising baggage. And then at 8 p.m. on Fox, Welcome to Flatch. This is a new episode. In the winter premiere episode, Flatch, or bust. Barb isn't happy about her birthday, so Kelly tries to cheer her up. And also on NBC at 8, Law & Order Special Victims Unit. The crime drama's 24th season picks up again, with new episodes starting tonight with Jumped In. When Benson becomes the target of a ruthless gang leader, Durate takes the case. Meanwhile, works with the Bronx SVU to help clear their case backlog, and Dixon offers to translate when a deaf student 
is raped. Okay, now we can't leave this page without catching a classic on TCM. This, is, this particular one has a special theme. This is the Jewish experience on TCM, and it begins at 7 p.m. tonight with one of the great ones, Fiddler on the Roof. The music and the acting uh, are just terrific. Uh, and there's also uh, quite a lot of humor uh, to the film. So check that out. That is uh, a, a real winner. The next one is Gentleman's Agreement. Uh, again, uh, these are all classics. And the last one is Crossfire. So if you do have a chance, check out some of these films. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Well, I'm sure you're probably aware, you know, that California has just been getting uh, just pelted with uh, bad weather, snow and rain and enormous amount of flooding. Um, I guess they're saying that from one, from one point of view, they're delighted because it's helping to uh, uh, reduce the, the terrible drought conditions out there. Uh, but on the other hand, the, uh, the weather has just been so out of control and with flooding and such. Anyway, here's an article. It's called California Midwest Our Targets. Newsom declares state of emergency to allow for quick response. In San Francisco, powerful winds roared into California on Wednesday, already toppling trees as crews rushed to clear storm drains and people fortified their homes in preparation for flooding and power outages. California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency to allow for a quick response and to aid in the cleanup from another powerful storm just days earlier. Dozens of flights were canceled at the San Francisco International Airport and South San Francisco schools preemptively canceled Thursday classes. As the storm intensified, state officials warned residents in Northern California to stay off the roads. In Northern California, a 25-mile stretch of Highway 101 was closed between the towns of Trinidad and Oric due to several downed trees. We anticipate that this may be one of the most challenging and impactful series of storms to touch down in California in the last five years, said Nancy Ward, the new director of the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services. We're in the middle of a flood emergency and also in the middle of a drought emergency, she said during an emergency briefing. The storm comes days after a New Year's Eve downpour led to the evacuations of people in rural Northern California communities and the rescue of several motorists from flooded roads. The storms in California still aren't enough to officially end the drought, now entering its fourth year. The U.S. drought monitors showed that most of the state is in, is in severe to drought, extreme drought conditions. Elsewhere in the Midwest, ice and heavy snow took a toll this week, closing down schools in Minnesota and western Wisconsin and causing a jet to slide off an icy taxiway, taxiway I should say, after landing in a snowstorm in Minneapolis. No passengers were injured, Delta Airlines said. To the south, a possible tornado damaged homes, downed trees, flipped a vehicle on its side in Montgomery, Alabama, early Wednesday. Christina Thornton, director of the Montgomery Emergency Management Agency, said that radar indicated a possible but unconfirmed tornado. The storm had extremely high winds and moved through the area before dawn, she says. 
Staff from National Weather Service's Chicago office plan to survey storm damage on Wednesday following at least six tornadoes, the largest number of rare January tornadoes recorded in the state since 1989. Now, let's finish our day's reading of the uh, Courier. This is a section about the coronavirus. I won't be able to read the whole article because it is long, uh, so let me get to this right away. Staying on schedule with the COVID-19 vaccine can feel like chasing a moving target. Rules and recommendations for the shot series changed over the last two years. The studies revealed that the efficacy of different vaccines, new vaccine recipes, were released and federal regulators granted different age groups across uh, to, uh, actually, I should say, excuse me, I should say different age groups access to the jabs. The new bivalent booster designed to create antibodies against both the original COVID-19 strain and the Omicron variant is now available to adults and kids six months and older. Although people's eligibility for this updated dose depends on which vaccines and vaccinations they've already had and when they're going to get their when they got their last shot. COVID-19 cases are once again rising, spurred by the highly contagious Omicron subvariants. B.Q.1.B.Q.1.1 and XBB alongside high rates of the flu and respiratory virus or RSV. Staying on top of the most recent vaccination schedule is still critical to mitigating the virus, doctors are saying. I think there's some degree of vaccine fatigue among everyone and the novelty with the COVID-19 vaccine has worn off. People may not be necessarily paying attention to what the most current recommendation is. Public health experts expect the coronavirus to become more seasonal in coming years, similar to how flu cases in the U.S. tend to pick up in the winter and decline in the spring. That change could allow for a more predictable vaccine timeline, says Dr. Pedro Pedidra, professor of molecular virology and microbiology and of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Time will tell, but I think ideally we would like to be able to have something kind of like the flu, where we have an annual vaccination campaign and we have an updated vaccine. How that might look might change from year to year, Piedra went on to say, because COVID-19 is so new, it will likely take some time before updated vaccines are released on a regular schedule. And in the meantime, here's what you need to know about the current COVID-19 vaccine recommendations and when they might change. You've got the initial vaccine series. Vaccines that combat the original COVID-19 strains have been available for, uh, for different age groups for either months or years. You got the Pfizer BioNTech adults and children five and older received the primary series of the Pfizer vaccine and two doses given three to eight weeks apart. And then you have Moderna. Moderna's initial vaccine series is also approved for people ages six months and older and is given in two doses uh, for to, four to eight weeks apart. Then you've got Novavax, which is only authorized for children over the age of 12. And then you've got Johnson and Johnson and Janssen, J-A-N-S-S-E-N. 
Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is only available for adults 18 and older who are unable to get the Moderna, Pfizer, and Novavax vaccines. And that just about does it here today for the reading of the uh, Thursday edition of The Courier, uh, which is January 5th. I am your reader, Peter Welch. I want to thank you for listening today, and you have been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio, Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.